0: mention utah outside of the state and people will often think of big families belonging to the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints but utah has absorbed thousands of immigrants since the latter-day saint pioneers first arrived in 1847 we have many of these immigrant stories thanks to the woman at the center of today's episode
1: one of the things that always interests me about my mom's writing when i read it is that she had really kind of a wonderful sense of humor. Her sense of the pathos of life and uh, how hard it is for many people, it didn't quench that. She loved a, a, a good story.
0: I'm Michelle Welch from Utah Women's Walk, and this is Legacies, a podcast dedicated to preserving the inspiring stories and wisdom of Utah women. Born in 1917 in a small mining camp in Carbon County, Helen Papanikolas was an acclaimed and influential ethnic historian, folklorist, and novelist. Her writings captured the immigrant experience and elevated the stories of everyday Utahns. I spoke with her son Zeiss Papanikolas in 2006, two years after her death. We spoke over the phone which affected the audio. That said, we think you'll still find this well worth a listen.
1: My mother was really molded by her years in Helper, Utah. Wow. To being true, Italians, North and South, Greeks, Poles, Russians, Hispanics, you name it, all of them living in these towns and mining and then small business people as well. And that was powerful for her as was you know, the Depression years were also very powerful when she saw what happened when the mines were shut down.
2: Right, and right.
1: The, the hardships inflicted on people. And the labor unrest, too, was, was something that she and her sisters were very aware of. Major strikes in the area and, and some violence. And racism, too. Talking um, mm-hmm. events that always stayed with her was the hanging. A a black guy who was accused of something or other, you know, a a vigilante hanging. Right. It was strong. Now, when she moved to Salt Lake, she brought, I think, all of this with her. And where you will find, I think, her experiences, although she never, she's not an autobiographical writer in the sense that some experiences she writes about were hers or were her friends, but she always has that distance
2: from right, right. And, and,
1: and so I, I think that it, you know, it would be a mistake to read anything that she wrote as being autobiographical. But, but what happened, I think, in Salt Lake is that she was thrust uh, into the dilemma that Greek women of her generation had. That is, Salt Lake, you know, it was a, a city. It was filled with the latest of everything. And she was living uh, in a house with her sisters with immigrant parents. My my grandparents, her, her parents, I think were extraordinary people and, and very intelligent and were more liberal than the average Greek immigrant parents. But nevertheless, they had old country ideals of what was proper for women mm-hmm. and, and girls and what their role was. And so I think I think about my mom, I think you have to think of the experience of her and the Greek women that she grew up with in those high school years as, as being caught, caught between these two worlds. The immigrant world, where women were taught to be modest, taught to be deferential to the adults, and really taught that they played second fiddle all the way to the men. Mm-hmm. You know, Greek culture is very patriarchal. And yet, here in high school, there are these active, bright young women that participate in clubs, they're doing things, and especially when you go to the University of Utah, you find even more of that. And so my mom absorbed that and, and felt that, and this is really where a lot of her strongest writing, I think, comes from. Greek women have an extraordinary amount of power In the house, but it doesn't extend beyond those walls. Of course, the men probably make major decisions whether a daughter is going to go to college or not. And of course, in my mom's generation, there still were arranged marriages where your father would say to you, even though you had been born in the United States, had gone to high school with kids of all different uh, cultures and ethnicities, we found a very good husband for you in Japan, That you'll be married next June.
2: Wow. <laughs>
1: Although it was becoming more rare. So, but other than that, does I think that women are very strong in, in the home in Greek culture, and they have a kind of indirect influence on the outside world because of how close they are to their sons. And so often they will influence events through their sons, you know, enter the male sphere of action through their influence on their sons. It's really quite an interesting thing to, to watch this happening.
2: What was your mom's experience in high school? Did she date?
1: Oh, no, absolutely not. Neither she or uh, any of her sisters had anything that could be called dating. They would go out, you know, all all the girls would drive together maybe and go to a a drive-in and have a hamburger and a Coke, that sort of thing. Where they principally had uh, a chance to meet uh, young men would be at the Greek dances and festivals that were sponsored by the Greek church and then various other events like baptisms and weddings and, and so forth. But The Greek immigrant generation saw as a danger their daughters marrying non-Greeks. And so uh, they encouraged a lot of social activities in the Greek church. And there's a very amusing picture of my mom and her sisters dressed in the uniform of the daughters of Penelope, which was a social organization for young Greek girls. But all of this was aimed at just trying to get them to marry other Greeks.
2: So she attended East High School, a public school. But then, as far as her social life, she was limited, or maybe that's not the right word, but required or not allowed to go to the high school dances and those kinds of things. That would oh yeah no be ab- in the-
1: ab- absolutely not. And I don't think that you can imagine it as you know her father as forbidding this. It
2: right. just
1: wasn't done. You know, you just grew up with the sense that, you know, you might want to do this. You know, you might feel envious of uh, your girlfriends who were going to the dance or the prom or something like this, but it, but for you, it just wasn't done. You know, it would just cause too great a breach in the, the structure of your society. So uh, I think that Greek women of my mom's generation sort of endured <laughs> that. Right rather than were, you know, constantly rebelling against their parents.
2: So when she was down in Helper, she was required to go to Greek school.
1: Right. What the Greek school was doing was enforcing a sense of Greek cultural identity. And also, the Greek that these kids by and large spoke was a kind of uh, peasant version of Greek. and uh, they, they, contrived after the Greek Revolution, a kind of artificial, highfalutin sort of Greek. And that's what was taught in Greek school,
2: Hmm. which was
1: one of the reasons why it was really alienating, because you were using a language that was only used in literature and in the the newspapers.
2: Interesting.
1: And so so you're always wrong, (laughs) you know. Right, right. And it was a language that you you wouldn't even be speaking at home. So it, it was a pretty alienating experience for these kids.
2: Let's go back a little bit. Tell me what you know about your parents' courtship and how she met your father.
1: Well, they met at the University of Utah, my mom and dad. And my mom (laughs) actually was not very taken with my father at first. Now, you have to remember that, like all minority members, you know, you get to be sort of hypersensitive, that generation, to anything that makes you stand out or makes you seem... uh, like you're not doing things in an absolutely approved way. Well, my father had grown up hunting, fishing, and so during duck season, he would show up in his English class, and he'd go out and shoot a few ducks before class. <laughs> he would come, you know, to class unshaven in his honey clothes. <laughs> um, and so my mother who had a high sense of propriety, just thought that was just abominable. She had determined that she wanted to be a writer quite young. And he was associated with the pen, the literary magazine at the University of Utah. And at the time she met my father, my father was no writer, but that became, you know, the basis of, of their friendship. And then they later became, her younger sister was dating, if you can call it that, I, you know, to the extent that Greeks, Greek young men and women dated. But she and uh, one of my father's good friends from Magna were having a, a flirtation. They eventually married. And so my mom and dad were Sort of involved in shepherding that relation and that's how they got together my father was a businessman very involved in his business and interested in making a success of himself my mother of course an intellectual very involved in books and the world of higher culture but they had some areas where they had a very strong bond and one of them was the immediate family, my sister, and they it's very devoted to us and to their separate families, you know, their brothers and sisters. And so they they had that. And then, of course, that's very much in uh, the Greek tradition. And, in you know, most cultures have that very strong family uh, bond. The other thing that they had in common, which was interesting, is that both of them were very intelligent. And my father had a great deal of imagination. And both of them in their own ways, and I've written about this, had a really strong interest in history, and mostly the immediate history of the immigrant world in which they grew up, but also the larger history of Utah. And one of the things that every once in a while I'm asked to speak about my mom, and one of the things that she has the reputation of being an ethnic writer, someone who studied Greek immigrants, But both of my parents, as strongly as they were attached to their identity as Greeks, Greek Americans, they were equally attached to their identity as being Utahns.
2: Mm -hmm. You
1: know, they saw themselves as real Westerners.
2: Your father did he graduate from University of Utah yes, also? Yes, did. And what did he do for a living then in his business?
1: Okay, well he and his brothers, you know, started out with the lumberyard, and then after the war they started building GI houses in and around Salt Lake, and then they built shopping centers and were partners in a regional center in Arizona, and so they were developers, home builders. That was their primary business. And mm-hmm. my father eventually went into commercial construction and built many buildings at the University of Utah. My father was a great storyteller. You know, he, his stories that start on, he had a wonderful sense of being able to capture, not imitate, but just give you the suggestion of how a certain person would talk. Sheep herder or, you know, <laughs> big nose Pete, the local Greek pimp in Magna or, you know, whoever <laughs> it was, it, 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 they, they, come up right before you and historians you know they might have a beginning and they might have a middle but they never had any hand they just sort of wander around and all of these wonderful memories of his would come out and they're often very funny now my mother was even then before she'd actually started writing history was very much the historian and she wanted things to be right and she wanted to be them to be accurate And so I can hear a voice just now interrupting my father and say, Oh, Nick, that couldn't have happened before World War I. Uh, You know, he wasn't even in Carbon County then. He came in 1926. My mother had been formed by the kind of American realism of, The 1920s and the 1930s, the kind of social realism that the Chicago writers were were working with, and John Steinbeck, and figures like that who were writing about the very real and often very grim lives that working-class people lived. And so she wanted these stories to be accurate, and and that's the way her writing, both her fiction and her history, they're they're accurate. She was not only the daughter of immigrants with a very strong expectation that a woman devotes her life 100% to family and husband. But of course, also the women of the 1950s, that was that was very much what middle-class women were like in, in the 1950s. Okay. Anything that she was doing, she was stealing the time and writing late at night, working late at night. And then she was asked to uh, write something about the immigrant community in Carbon County. Yeah. That became her career as a, started her career as
2: a historian. What it was like growing up in your home and how she incorporated Greek culture in your home. I was curious if she taught you the bread was holy, for example.
1: Oh no, no. You know, a lot of those customs had gone uh, by the boards. My my mom's relation to the Greek Church was the one in which she saw it as a kind of a powerful cultural center, and. She read a great deal about religion and read some theologians, and she had a lot of trouble with, with some of the mystical doctrines of the Greek church and other churches as well, I should say. And I think you would have to consider that she considered herself an agnostic, but not a cultural agnostic. She, she loved the ceremonies of the Greek church and the beauty in these traditions. So she didn't feel compelled to push my sister and me in any very strong religious way. But the holidays, the cooking, the, you know, the Greek delicacies, all of those things that she, she was very much a participant in that. Her mother was one of the most extraordinary cooks I have ever known. She grew up in Salonika. And she was, my grandmother, uh, mm-hmm. was a, a servant girl in Salonika. And that was, you know, a very sad thing uh, for girls. It was real loss of caste and status. But it, it, the one thing that was good is that she grew up in this, uh, my grandmother did, in this sort of multicultural city. And so her cooking, and this is how principally it came out, was the best of everything.
2: I think I have a good list of her published things. She's done so many, a, such a variety of things, from history right. to fiction. And would you say that the peoples of Utah, is that her crowning work? Is that her most difficult? Well, work? no,
1: because it was, added to. this is was editorial work. It was difficult in another sense that, This, of course, is something that hadn't really been done in the state of Utah, and I think that it it shows a lot of confidence in my mom as a historian that she was chosen to edit this. It required a lot of work in finding people to write these uh, chapters on the various ethnic groups, the right person, and and she actually did co-wrote some of them that were written by people who, were amateurs, and you didn't have the background as historical writers. So she did a, a lot of work in a number of the chapters, and then the various editing, tasks. It was a lot of work, and a, and a very important book, a very important book for Utah to, you know, to tell the whole story of this this state.
2: Right, it was really used as a standard text for all the colleges and universities.
1: Right, right. I would say, this was the side of my mom, and again, to go back to my parents, one of the other things that they really had in common was a sense of sort of civic duty, and they were generous in the donations they made in terms of money, but also in terms of time and people of Utah. Only one of my mom's activities, boards she served on, and so forth. I think the book that she put most of herself into was the biography of her parent, Emily George, or republished by University of Nebraska Press as uh, Greek Odyssey in the American West. She had a great deal, well let's put it this way, she wanted to find out who her parents were. She knew them as parents, she knew them as very loving parents, but also as people that you grow up with. You have your frictions with and you have your you know, the day to day negotiations and, and lives that you have with the parents. But this was her opportunity to find out who they were and and where they came from. And so it was a powerful book of research, but she also had to find out, I think, in a certain sense, who she was, and to think about her relation with her parents, but to really think about what it would be like to be thrown into this new world, and they had extraordinarily interesting lives, and in many respects, especially I think her mother, very sad life. Where did her father's absolute need to succeed in this country come from? You know, just this burning passion to be a success. Well, by learning this miserable village that he came from, what it was like, and uh, what his family suffered, she got to understand that. And, and her mother, you know, growing up as a servant girl, trying desperately to help her family. and finally coming to the United States and marrying essentially a stranger as the only way uh, she could see of being able to to help her family in the old country. Again, one of the strongest things in my mother, I think, is her sense of other people's suffering. And she was always very sensitive to that from girlhood. And I think that this, you know, really informs her writing. So I think that was probably the most difficult and powerful book that she had to write, and I think it contained some of her best writing as well.
2: Tell me about her health. It says that she had some failing eyesight. When did that occur, and what happened?
1: Well, that that actually started, I think, in the 80s, and she, she had glaucoma and uh, macular degeneration, and... It, it progressed, it, this was progressive, and it got to the point where she would be reading with a large magnifying glass and she had, you know, her computer had a very large screen on it. It was difficult, but I don't, you know, she. my mother is one of these people, you know, like Thomas Jefferson. She couldn't live without books. And so as her eyesight decreased, she, I think she rationed it to use only on her writing, but it was difficult for her to pick up a novel or, you know, an article and read it, and that that was bad for her.
2: Yeah, I bet. That leads me to my question. I emailed you about what you would consider her greatest trial. Do you think that would have been?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I think, well, let me see how I can put this. Because my mother had such a strong sense of family, she was very involved in her children and grandchildren and their ups and downs. And at the same time, she had a tremendous need to to finish what she would consider her work and that is her writing. She had really put her writing on hold for many years while she was, you know, a dutiful wife and mother.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that she didn't you know she didn't resent it but it was a hard thing to do, right. and so when she finally had the chance, and my father's health was, was not good for many years too, I and mean, he took quite a bit of tending to as well, so when she finally had a chance to have more time to you know, devote to her writing, she really felt an urgent need to, to finish books, short stories, novels, She never felt she'd done enough, and so she put a lot of pressure on herself. And she had these stories which she wanted to tell. And I think that was the main pressure. She really wanted to tell the story of Greek immigrants, her generation, and even the generation of of her children, to kind of give a complete sense in both history and in fiction of what that was like. Mm-hmm. And so that was the urgency to, to write better, to get it right. She always wanted to get it right, and coupled with, you know, her declining eyesight, and finally, you know, really working on this last novel, up to within, you know, oh, a few months of her death, really. This is, this is I think, something that, I guess you'd call it her greatest, greatest trial. But she wouldn't put it that way, <laughs> you know, She was a very stoical person. Mm-hmm. That you got from her, her parents, her her father especially. I, I remember once she told me that her mother cut herself very badly with a butcher knife, right you know, down her forearm. She scraped off some leather from a belt, rubbed it into the wound wrapped up the wound and just kept on cooking.
2: Wow.
1: You know, but I mean that's that really is the way the, you know you know, it's the way poor people live, well, all over the world. Even when she quote unquote wasn't writing, she was up late at night and she was working on things. She was working on ideas for stories or making notes or writing the journal or just reading those stacks and stacks of the partisan review that were still when we cleaned out the house at Milbrath we were still in the basement. She wanted to remain connected with an intellectual world and a broader world. And so I think that's what you would have to say, you know, just, I'm going to try to figure out a, a, a simple way of saying this that might be useful to you. Trying to, I think my mother's biggest trial was trying to live in two worlds at the same time. The world of the Greek woman with its tremendous demand in terms of time and emotional connection with family, children and the Greek community. And at the same time trying to live in the world of an intellectual, a writer, uh, a member of a broader community of writers and thinkers. and workers in the intellectual
2: field. She served as a mentor to many other young historians. In fact, this great book by Patricia Lynn Scott and Linda Thatcher called Women in Utah History Paradigm right. or Paradox. They say, Linda said, we all wanted to grow up and be like her. Who were your mother's mentors? And
1: wh- well, I knew you were going to ask this question. I was talking about with my wife last night, you see, I think one of the things that, you know, one of the sadnesses of my mom and women of her generation who don't live in a major American city, you know, don't live in Chicago or New York or San Francisco, is that in the 40s and the 50s, there were no women intellectual mentors for her. There were certainly women she admired, her mother, for example, and other other women that she knew, but they weren't intellectuals. And I think it'd be hard put, really, in that era to find active Utah women who were intellectuals, who weren't, oh, in some sense, kind of closeted. Uh, they may have been teaching at the University of Utah or at Logan, but few and far between is what I'm trying to say. And her, the one mentor who I think is interesting is, and she mentions uh, him in a number of books. The last one, and also in the story of her father, Stilian Stays, S T A E S, and he was the Greek flight counsel in Helper and Price, Utah, and he was a Greek immigrant had a little more education than most of them, spoke English very well. Sweet. His job was just to help these Greek immigrants negotiate the strange world of the United States and its laws. But he was an exceptional person. And when he would come and visit her house and, and help her and prize, was always a big event for her. He encouraged her, her to read. He encouraged her intellectually. He gave her, I think, a sense that there was more out there for a Greek woman who had some brains and just being a wife uh, and mother. And he encouraged her to think for for herself, I think in certain ways, but she always remembered, he said, well, you know, Eleni, with religion, you eat the flesh and throw away the bones. And that she took to interpret as you take the good things out of religion. She was very much a Christian in the sense of the Gospels, you know, in Jesus's actual words and doings, if she was an agnostic in terms of believing in miracles and believing in an afterlife and, you know, and believing every bit of, you know, theology. So, Days was very important to her. And then later on, people she met at the University of uh, Utah, Wallace Stegner was one of her teachers. He was very young at the time. And of course, he was a model of someone with literary ambition and talent and skill. And encouraged her, and they they kept up now and then. You know, I mean, he, he did not forget her, and every once in a while she'd write him a note or, he'd, you know, recall her. But he was very close to Richard Scowcroft. As I said, a good friend of his was editor of the pen, the job she took over at the University of Utah, and literary imagination and accomplishment, and have Brewster Gieslin as well. But anyway, you, you know, when, when you say mentors, one of the things about my mom that's interesting is that not just... You know, people who were smart or literary. She admired very much people who had a sense of dignity and a sense of strength. And so there are many people who I don't even know about who may have been almost illiterate sheepherders who she admired. One of the people that she very much admired was the Greek midwife in Magna, Utah, Mayeru. They called her. She wrote an article about her.
2: Right. Uh, again, you
1: know, someone who's strong and independent and, you know, just uh, does their work and, and then some.
2: Do you recall any of the honors that were particularly meaningful to her?
1: Oh, she was pleased to be recognized by the Association of Christians and Jews in Salt Lake and by the Modern Greek Studies Association. She wanted to be recognized by people and by organizations that she herself admired. Mm. And and I think that's what was important to her. More than that, I would say is that when she traveled and went to give a talk or a reading in Chicago or New York, and some woman of her generation came up to her and said to her, oh, Mrs. Papa Nicholas, that story that you wrote about the woman you know, who found out her father was a drone, that me, you know, I mean, the feeling of people when they found their lives articulated, this is, I think, what pleased her as much or more than any of the honors she mm-hmm. us.
2: Are there any portions, these books, the novels that she wrote, the fiction, Small Bird Tell Me, The Apple Falls from the Apple Tree, Time of the Little Blackbird, and Rain in the Valley, I think we've talked about this. Really, I wondered if any of them, portions of them you saw as being autobiographical.
1: It would be very misleading to say that anything in my mom's work is autobiographical just as it would be misleading to say that none of her work is autobiographical. It all is and isn't. And even, you know, like family members think that they might recognize another family member in this character, that character. But in fact, they're often combinations of two or three or four people that she's known. You know, this is the way she worked as a writer. One of the things that always uh, interests me about my mom's writing when I read it is that She had really kind of a a wonderful sense of humor. Her sense of the pathos of life and uh, how hard it is for many people, it didn't quench that. She loved a a good story. I think that one of the things that allowed my mother to see the world clearly was her sense of humor, which gives you a kind of distance and objectivity. And I'm very grateful for that. I think that people who read her books and miss that are missing uh, a lot of her personality.
2: Was she actively involved in her grandchildren's lives? I know she... Oh
1: yeah, very much so.
2: Tell me about her lymphoma at the end of her life.
1: Well, you know, I'm so bad on dates, but it, I think she, I think that she had a little over a year to live, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And she, it was hard on her because, you know, she wanted to keep writing. I don't think that she is a person that clung to life just as life but you know she was a worker and I think that was a kind of disappointment uh, to her and she was you know pretty pretty stoical about it
2: Did she know when she was diagnosed that it was a non-curable type of lymphoma or was
1: Well you know they there's always some you know some Vague hopes, and you know, I, you know, I think that, like most people in that situation, uh, sometimes you think, well, you know, maybe there's a chance, and other times you think that there's not. But she became reconciled to, to, dying. You know, she she didn't like it one bit, but you know, to say she was a stoical person.
2: What do you think she would hope to be remembered for? I'm sure everything we've talked about, just her stories and her ability to put into words what it was like to be an immigrant in this country. in the. Yeah. Well,
1: I, you know, I think that, at, that, of course, you want to be remembered for. I think specifically in Utah, I think that she would like to be remembered for Doing her part to opening up the history and culture of Utah to its entire ethnic population. And, and, you know, not just by peoples of Utah, but, you know, the other civic work that she did. That's what she would want to be uh, remembered for.
0: We want to thank Zies Papa Papanikolas for the interview about his mother, Helen. We honor her for her wonderful contributions to not only Utah, but the country as a leading ethnic historian. If you've enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, as well as subscribe and rate us on iTunes. To listen to the full interview regarding the life of Helen Papanicholas and other remarkable Utah women, visit our website at utawomenswalk.org. A special thanks to our supporters, Denise and Ellen Alexander, Roman and Ann Takasaki, Julie Bagley, and Shauna Duke. And thank you to our writer and producer, Tamara Kimsley, and our editor, Ron Cool, as well as Catherine McIntyre from the Utah Valley University Archives. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Legacies.